Welcome to On the Job with Porak, your go-to place for public safety and officer rights, giving you the news you need to know and discussing the issues that matter. Welcome to On the Job with Porak. I'm Brian Marvel, president of Porak, and today we have a special presentation. I have two guests in studio with me from the New York Sergeants Association talking about a incident that I heard at the University of San Diego, the Law Enforcement Association Leadership Symposium. I felt it uh, was very compelling and it was important that we have other people listen to what they have to say because honestly, this could happen to any one of us. And if you don't have an association like the Sergeants Association in New York, um, you know, protecting you, it is, uh, you're, you're really putting yourself out to risk and your family uh, not having that type of coverage. So I'd like to uh, first introduce uh, Ed Mullins. He's the president of the Sergeants Association with the New York City Police Department and Andrew Quinn, who is their general counsel. How you doing, gentlemen? Great, Good. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Hey, Ed, why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll talk about Andrew, and then we'll move right into uh, to We Are Barry. Sure. Um, I'm president of the NYPD Sergeants Association. been a member of the NYPD for about 36 years now and been president of the Sergeants Association for the last 17 years. Um, you know, worked all over the city of New York, did a lot of stuff with labor, and here we are with you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for coming out. I really appreciate it. And uh, this podcast is being brought to you from uh, Las Vegas. Uh, we're attending the Major Cities Conference, which uh, Ed's association is the, uh, the primary sponsor. And I believe it's going to be the Fort Worth Police Officers Association you're co-sponsoring with. Correct, so, yeah. Uh, fantastic program. Uh, and, and we could probably do a whole other podcast on the Major Cities. And maybe we can get Vinny in here on this one. But uh, Andrew, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, primarily I serve as general counsel to the New York City Sergeants Benevolent Association. A lot of people don't know, but in New York City, the job is so large that uh, every rank, detective, police officer, lieutenant, captain, and sergeant have their own PBAs. Um, shortly after 9-11, Ed had just been elected and reached out to me. I was representing police officers north of New York City uh, in the suburbs up in uh, Westchester County, Putnam, and Rockland County. And Ed reached out to me and asked me if I was interested in representing the SBA, which is the third largest police municipal police union in the country. And dream job, of course. So I jumped at it. And uh, I've been representing sergeants uh, in New York City since 2002. Excellent. Again, uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And this is going to be a special hour-long presentation because... The story we're going to hear is, uh, like I said earlier, is extremely compelling. And uh, I know Hugh Barry is extremely grateful for both of you gentlemen uh, for the work that you did in, let's call it what it was, uh, political prosecution. And uh, we're going to hear more about that. Um, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about the incident and, sure. uh, you know, what happened? Yeah, and you know what's interesting about... Uh, this particular shooting is that, uh, you know, to say that we didn't see the political aspect of this coming is, is a tr dramatic understatement. I mean, in the New York City Police Department, there are weapons discharges all the time. So we have a process in place where if there's a shooting, one of our 
union delegates or union directors responds. If it's a fatal shooting, uh, in all cases, we'll have an attorney respond, and generally a high-level member of the board of directors. In this case, it happened to be Ed Mullins. Um, as soon as the shooting went off, notifications were made, and both Ed Mullins and I responded to the 4-3 precinct in the Bronx because we had been advised that um, the woman involved, uh, Mrs. Deborah Danner, was likely to die. And when you get that kind of shooting, you get an immediate response from our association. Honestly, when we first got there, um, and to this day, none of the facts as, as in terms of what occurred inside the bedroom were ever in dispute. Um, in short, um, Deborah Danner had a long, long history of psychiatric problems. She had been in and out of institutions in the city of New York for many, many years. Uh, she lived in uh, a condominium complex in the Bronx. Her sister lived in the building adjacent to the building that she lived in. Uh, there was a lot of history and uh, neighbors were very, very familiar with Mrs. Danner. Um, on the incident of uh, the shooting, or on the evening of the shooting, rather, she, uh, she was off her medications, and she was creating this very violent disturbance in the apartment, which prompted the uh, security people to call 911, as well as a neighbor called 911. And in the 911 tapes, which were played ultimately at the criminal trial, you can hear Mrs. Danner in the background screaming and yelling and shouting. She was tearing things off the wall. She was threatening neighbors. Um, but this was a fairly routine call. I mean, we get uh, what are classified as EDP calls in the city of New York on a regular basis. So the original response is by the police officers. And four officers responded. And because it's an EDP call, we needed uh, the department requires a supervisor respond. And the facts, as we learned them on the night of the shooting, which to this day, like I say, have never really been disputed, were that Sergeant Barry arrived and Mrs. Danner was in her bedroom. She was armed with a pair of scissors. Uh, she was threatening the officers, none of whom were willing to go into the apartment because she was armed. There were two EMTs waiting in the hallway. They both refused to go into the apartment because she was armed. Um, and the question was, for Sergeant Barry, what do I do? Um, he asked the officer who was at the scene, who had been communicating with Mrs. Barry, you haven't any luck getting her to put the scissors down. And he says, no, we've been trying, but it's just not successful. So Sergeant Barry does exactly what he's trained to do, which is he engages Mrs. Danner in an effort to get her to put the scissors down. And he does. Um, the crime scene photos showed very clearly that um, there's a nightstand directly next to the bed, and Mrs. Danner put the scissors exactly where Sergeant Barry believed that she had put them. And then he was able to talk her out of the bedroom. They were all in the apartment at this point. Sergeant Barry and the officers were about five or six feet away. Um, because of the configuration of the apartment, there was like a wall in between them, um, so they didn't have a direct access to her. But he got her to put the scissors down. And then he got her to walk out the bedroom almost all the way, but in a location where he thought that he could now take her with his hands and bring this to a peaceful resolution. Um, of course, EDPs being EDPs, you never know. They're always fraught with danger, but uh, he got her away from the scissors. She was about 10 feet away from the scissors and near the exit of the bedroom when she sort of changed her position and said, I'm not coming out. Uh, I refuse to come out. And it became apparent to Sergeant Barry and the other officers that she wasn't going to come voluntarily, and they didn't want her to go back in and rearm herself. 
So Sergeant Barry looked at the officers to his right and kind of nodded. They responded that they understood um, all through signals, all through understanding and police experience. They all knew what the job was going to be, which is that they were just going to grab her, uh, rush her and grab her with the hands. She's a 66-year-old woman. She was obese, um, and they thought they could easily get her. What they didn't know, what nobody knew, was that she had secreted a bat, a baseball bat on the bed, and it was a legitimate wooden baseball bat. Um, they could beat her to the scissors, but they didn't know about the bat. So when he rushed to grab, when Sergeant Barry rushed to grab her, she took two or three steps back and armed herself with a bat. This is an extraordinarily small apartment, so everybody ran in at once. And now she's got the bat, and she's only three to four feet away from Sergeant Barry, and she's brandishing it. She's, according to all the witnesses, wiggling the bat in her hands, screaming, step back, step back. Sergeant Barry takes out his firearm and asks her, please drop the bat, please drop the bat. He cannot retreat because the other officers are directly behind him, and it's a very enclosed space. All of this happens, best estimate, between three and five seconds. He asks her to drop the bat several times. She steps toward him, begins to swing the bat, and that's when he discharges his weapon, strikes her twice. All of these facts were known to us within an hour of our responding to the 4-3 precinct. And in New York State, in the city of New York, an officer has every right to use deadly physical force when deadly physical force is being threatened upon him or someone else. And he doesn't have a duty to retreat. So we thought this was going to be a straight presentation to the grand jury with uh, a no bill, meaning no charges, because self-defense. We thought this was a justified shooting. Um, and we thought that up until we got ready to leave at about four hours later um, when we got a call from the NYPD. Actually, Ed took the call or learned of the call first that um, the police commission was going to modify um, Hugh Barry. And modification, for lack of a better term, is he's going to take his badge and gun. It's an implication that he did something wrong, which we didn't understand what, if anything, he could have done wrong. And, and that's doesn't it also within a couple hours, didn't the commissioner come out and already say that yeah. your department had failed this lady? I mean, it's... Yeah, what happens the next morning, you know, we try to get Ed to speak with, um, you know, as president of the union, we wanted this to communicate with somebody uh, in the higher levels of the NYPD to discuss this modification because we didn't understand it. Um, the next morning at a press conference unrelated to the Danner shooting, a question was asked by uh, a reporter to Commissioner O'Neill uh, about the Danner shooting. And he started going on uh, a tangent about bad police shootings. Um, he referred a couple of police shootings that, you know, he referred to the Baton Rouge shooting at a badge, that was a bad shooting, which he was wrong about. No charges were ever filed against those officers. Uh, he referred to the Philando Castile shooting, uh, which at that, sta that stage was in its infancy. And of course, as we all know, the officer was uh, acquitted in the Philando Castile shooting. Um, and he said, and his exact words were, we failed. It's not supposed to go like that. Um, first time that we heard the commissioner comment on this case, it was publicly at a press conference, and he essentially undermined our ability to defend Hugh Barry uh, on a level playing field. He told the world that it essentially his opinion, the highest ranking member of the NYPD, felt that Hugh Barry did the wrong thing by discharging his weapon. And then didn't the mayor double down and basically support what the commissioner was saying? Yeah. The, um, 
The incident that Andrew's describing is four or five key points, Brian, that I think for every cop in America that's listening needs to understand is that this incident can be them. And no cop wants to be in this situation to kill someone. But if they do, the political pandering that occurs can easily be them. Andrew's explaining that the night of the incident, there was four of us in a locker room, you, Barry, Andrew, myself, and Paul Tizzolo, who was subsequently killed about three weeks later. And we were getting ready to leave. The bosses that were in the precinct, the inspectors, the chiefs, the captains that were there, all indicated to us that this was a good shooting. The borough president, who was a minority of the Bronx borough, did a press conference and started claiming that we executed a 66-year-old woman. That was the dynamics that changed. So, you know, what follows is three incompetent people who meet together on the same night. The mayor of the city of New York, de Blasio, police commissioner James O'Neill, and chief of department Terrence Monaghan. Now, de Blasio is running a city where cops are being assassinated. James O'Neill has a history of basically being a screw-up. He was a CEO of a narcotics unit. His offices were feeding narcotics to CIs, which is illegal to do, but they were doing it. He was banished. Terrence Monaghan sued by, uh, I think, 230-something people for violation of civil rights, $18 million paid out. Now, realize that this is the leadership running the city of New York's police department. They meet, and where do we go? We fall into um, an issue of ethics and leadership, of public servants, that they actually didn't tell the truth to the residents of the city of New York of what happened up there. Um, and they didn't do that because they failed in their own weakness of leadership to stand up and defend the cops, to say, this is what happened. We know you don't like it, um, but this was the truth. And ultimately, their ethics issue is really lying within moral value of just doing what's right. So this then spins out of control on the words we failed to a conviction that went on for over a two-year period where you Barry was already assumed to be guilty. And the policy, I have 36 years in the NYPD, as I told you earlier, the policy for handling EDPs, violent EDPs, has been the same for the last 36 years. They changed it after the acquittal at the trial by changing the wording of EDP to person in crisis. That's the only change that was made. What is, what's the definition of EDP right now? Or what Emotionally disturbed person. And basically what we would describe as someone who's just totally in need of psychological help. They never gave a description of what's a person in crisis. So the way we operate is when you get a call for a violent EDP, you know, they give it to a patrol car. They say sergeant notified, emergency service notified. Now, what I'm going to tell you is astonishing that they hung their hat on you didn't wait for emergency service. Of, what are they, 70,000 calls, uh, yeah, 700,000 calls? The New York City Police Department feels tens of thousands of calls a month, hundreds of thousands of calls a year. And they acknowledge during the course of the criminal trial that they respond to less than like 3% one, of them. 1%, less than 1% does our emergency service unit respond to the job. So the common practice is to notify them. They should respond to the job, but they can't because of everything else that's going on. 
and patrol car, you know, a sector car that responds, handles the job. Less than 1% of the time does the emergency service unit actually handle the job. So this was their political um, lynching of Sergeant Barry, and they hung it on that we didn't wait for emergency service. But we responded back, and, and this is where representatives of law enforcement across the country need to get aggressive on these cases because your response is important through the, your attorneys, your legal response, your media response, you know, the news networks, your social media. And then it's getting the policies and the training and getting all of that ready because your response has got to go back on their words and show them, you trained me to do what I did. And we don't do that enough. And that, that's a learning uh, curve that I think a lot of us need to get more aggressive on. We did do this, and it actually worked for us. You know, where the media backed down on a lot of stuff. Yeah, Brian, more to your point, you had asked about the mayor. I mean, the commissioner comes out and says we failed. Uh, the mayor, within two hours, is at a press conference and says this should not have happened. He, he literally says the sergeant did not follow his training. Um, the commissioner is given an opportunity the next day to amend his statement because, by the way, it's headlines all over the place, right? right. Front page of the New York yeah. Post, Daily News, Every New York paper. Times. We failed. Commissioner essentially indicts the sergeant. Um, he was given the opportunity uh, the following day after the headlines came out to um, change his statement or at least or explain it right. or, yeah, temper it. And he doubled down. He said, no, 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 we, we failed. We failed. This shouldn't have happened. Um, Ed and I and members of the SBA's uh, board were prepared because we had seen what had happened in Ferguson. And, you know, for the rest of the country, the Ferguson effect is cops don't get out of cars. For the SBA, the Ferguson effect was we need to be prepared in the, effect, in the event that this happens to us, that we have a media response. So we had a plan in place. And we were prepared to respond. I just honestly, we never saw it coming on this particular case because we thought the facts, which would never been in dispute, would lead to the police commissioner and the mayor indicting uh, Sergeant Barry in this matter. Um, the next day when it came out, we responded. Uh, and we had a plan. And the plan was to attack the mayor and the commissioner on their lack of leadership. They essentially abdicated their responsibility to give Sergeant Barry I'm not even, just a fair opportunity to defend himself. Because obviously when, you know, you're the boss of the police department, right? You're the commissioner, you're the number one guy. And when everybody in the city hears that the commissioner says you failed, well then, you know, he knows best, right? Yeah. So we had no chance of getting a fair trial in the city of New York from that point forward. But we had a plan. And the plan consisted of getting out into the media our message. Yeah, I mean, it's absolute uh, zero due process for Barry. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that you have the mayor, your police commissioner, and I'm assuming the chief of chief police of is the number yeah. three, chief yeah. of the department, yeah. have all indicted him, which weighs heavily with the, uh, what do you, they're not, are they district attorneys in New York? Well, that's a whole different issue is the, the district attorney in Bronx County, uh, I mean, you know, we have a saying in the Bronx, you can indict a ham sandwich right. up there. I mean, we have, you know, people falling asleep, which happened in this grand jury. Uh, read magazines, and it's really an anti-police borough. Um, it's one of the most violent boroughs in the city of New York. And, you know, the the victims, the real victims in the Bronx, um, they're not even getting served by the DA's office. So, you know, the words of the mayor and the words of, 
O'Neill and it rolls back into leadership is that they pass the buck to the DA's office. You know, you deal with it. If you want to let this slide, then we'll blame you. Um, and that's really what they did. Brian, and what happened in the mayor's, I'm, I'm sorry, the police commissioner's second press conference on this, he said, but we're going to turn this over to our elected leadership, our, our elected officials and our elected district attorneys. Here's the truth about what happened in the Bronx. Um, the longtime district attorney was a guy named Robert Johnson. In the Bronx, if you're a Democrat, you win. It's a given. Republicans don't even run. They don't even try to run. It's an entirely Democratic borough. Robert Johnson had been a district attorney for nearly 20 years. After the Democratic primary date passed, he resigned his position. By doing that and by timing it so that he resigns after the primary date, that gives the Democratic machine in Bronx the right to appoint whoever they want because that person who is appointed will win the popular vote because only Democrats will win the popular vote. And essentially, they engineered it. And this is not a secret. This was reported in the press widely. Um, so, And he got a judgeship. And he got a judgeship out of the deal. Right. So what was distressing about not only is he indicting Sergeant Barry uh, without knowing all the facts, um, he's also sending out this sort of false message that, well, we have elected officials and they'll do their job when he knows damn well that Darcel Clark, the district attorney of the Bronx, wasn't elected. She was appointed. She got the votes because every, the Democrats always win, but she was appointed by the political machine in the Bronx. It was political payback. And we always felt very strongly that she felt as compensation for that nomination was she had to indict a cop. And that's where this entire political um, lynching really got its start. Basically, they all lied to the people of the city of New York about the case. And they did it because they just didn't want to stand up to any potential pressure that might have been a spillback of what we're seeing in the country. It's easier to have the case and then have Let, the jurors on a, make on the, the jurors, decision. Right. And Correct. they'd be like, I brought it forward versus doing the hard work and saying, look, this is a legitimate. Correct. Uh, the officer followed all of the proper procedures. Um, and I'm not going to file the case, but we're outside of New York. You're seeing this nationally. Uh, it's starting to happen a lot in California. Um, obviously, you know, PORAC, uh, we have a very large LDF program. And I think, you know, there's 10 officers nationally who are being charged with, uh, with murder. Right. Right. So back to, to Barry Hugh's uh, story. So it looks like he's indicted for murder two, manslaughter one, manslaughter two, and criminal negligent homicide. And that gets the case rolling. And you've already got the top three officials, the district attorney or prosecutor, all feel that uh, Hugh did something wrong and needs to be prosecuted for this. You guys are gearing up for the battle ahead. You clearly have a plan in place, which is awesome. And I agree. I think uh, we need to start doing this nationally as law enforcement unions. Um, where do we go from here? What's, let's get into the case. How yeah. did the case go? Because there was a lot of stuff where the media then started to start to play a part in the, uh, you know, being against Hugh Berry. Yeah, the, you know, what was interesting about it is in New York, um, if you're the subject of a criminal prosecution uh, and they're presenting the case to the grand jury, if you notify the district attorney, you have the right to testify before the district, uh, before the grand jury. So we notified the DA's office and walked you Barry into the grand jury, and he told the story. He said, I, you know, she, she swung the bat at my head. Uh, she was only several feet away from me. 
I got to tell you, Brian, during that grand jury, because I was sitting next to him, uh, people were reading magazines. One person slept through his entire testimony, never opened their eyes once. Um, other people were doing crossword puzzles. Nobody seemed to be listening to anything he said, in my view. So in April, um, six months after the shooting, we're notified that there's an indictment. And we honestly thought at best we'd be looking at a potential man, too, which in New York means that he acted recklessly. Um, Instead, they indicted him on murder in the second degree. And what that means, murder in the second degree is, at least in New York State, I formed the intent that I wanted to kill somebody, and I killed them intentionally. It's your objective intent is to end a life. It's no different than if uh, and a drug dealer walks up and whacks another drug dealer. And that's the level of crime that you, Barry, was charged, which, which was never remotely consistent with the facts. Um, and it, again, it just shows, it's an indication of just how clearly the Bronx DA's office and Darcel Clark was looking to pay back the Bronx Democratic machine and city government by indicting you, Barry, on the highest possible count. And I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, there was a representative of Black Lives Matters uh, organization who followed this trial the entire time. On the day of the arraignment, uh, when we presented you, Barry, and we were told for the first time it was murder in the second degree as the top count. As I was leaving the courthouse, that gentleman walked up to me. It turns out he also happens to be a lawyer. And he looked at me and said, Mr. Quinn, you know, I've been following this case, and I got to tell you, I don't know how they got murder two out of this indictment. He goes, I think your client should be charged, but not even I think murder two makes sense. So this is an attorney who represents the Black Lives Matter organization in the Bronx, and even he saw through how transparent this indictment was. But yeah, the indictment is the start of the criminal process in, um, in the Bronx, in New York City. So the next step is we got to try to get it out of New York City, <laughs> right? I mean, because we don't think there's a chance in the world, given the statements made by the police commissioner and the mayor, that you, Barry, can get a fair jury. And so what we did, and, you know, this is Again, we talk about legal defense funds and how important they are for police officers. Uh, we had to retain the services of a social psychologist from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, who made, I think the total number was 30,000 phone calls over the course of a month and a half to uh, get the opinions of a jur potential jurors in the Bronx to see whether or not we can get a fair jury in the Bronx. And I'm, I know this isn't going to surprise you. Uh, the, the results were overwhelmingly unfair to you, Barry. And one of the questions that we had asked was, did the police commissioner and the mayor's statements condemning you, Barry, or their comments on the case? Actually, we, we, we kind of graded up. We said, do you know about the comments? And we didn't characterize them. We just say, did they impact your ability to uh, judge this case? 86% of the people that heard the comments said yes, and in a manner that was unfavorable to you, Barry. So we filed a motion uh, for what we call change of venue. We tried to get the case moved out of the Bronx. And uh, unfortunately, you make that, uh, that goes directly not to the trial judge, but to an appellate division panel. And uh, in the history of New York, there's only been one case, actually there are two, um, but one out of New York City, which was the Amadou Diallo shooting. And another one was uh, a very horrific Brinks armored car robbery that occurred in Rockland County, a very, very small community, and several members of the community were killed in that, so they moved it out of Rockland. Those are the only two cases in the last hundred years that have gotten change of venue in New York State. So we knew we were swimming upstream, and of course we, we lost, which meant 
Now this case was going to be tried in the Bronx. With the case going on and the media coverage that you were receiving and uh, Ed being proactive and, and trying to set the record straight, it just seemed like everything was against you. And you obviously have the trial piece going on. And, and I know you did extensive work with the experts to, uh, you know, the stuff with the bat. You know, everybody's like, well, a 66-year-old person probably can't swing a bat. And then you guys brought in the, uh, the experts. And that was pretty, I, I found to be very compelling evidence in the fact of the velocity that a 66-year-old person could swing a bat at somebody's head. Yeah. and create the the injuries. Uh, was that like a, a, a turning point? I mean, did you see some small wins? I know we talked about it at Leals that every day you looked for wins and losses and you were trying to like see how it would pan out at the for the whole case. But were there high points in the case that you felt like, hey, you know, things are really working our way in the jury trial, but out here in the news media, it's all negative and they're not doing anything or reporting any of the positive stuff that you guys are doing in the case. It's almost like the media is working in concert with the mayor, your police commissioner and the prosecutor and only reporting the fact of the bad stuff that uh, Hugh had done during the incident versus all of these other things that had gone. Like we have AB 931 in California. If that had passed, our officers will all be prosecuted under AB 931 for doing their job. And this is exactly what happened with Hugh and the fact that he went in there. He responded to a call because they'll always rely. The other side will always say, you know what? You could have backed out of the room. The, the, the problem they don't understand, even with an agency your size, they all think we have unlimited resources. Oh, you could call in a SWAT team. You can call in this, helicopters. These guys could repel off of the side of the building and break in the – it's Hollywood. That's not reality in the street. When we have the understaffing in all of these departments throughout the United States, usually it's just two officers going to an incident like this trying to handle it. They don't have – helicopters they don't have SWAT teams they don't have all these other teams that are readily available to come and uh, and try to alleviate an incident like this that happens like you said in three to five minutes you, you are touching on a topic that you know the Barry case started just about three years ago okay so for the last three years we're talking about the Barry case you Barry had maybe three seconds to make a decision but yet we have three years to talk about his decision. And that's every officer in America. Um, we caught some victories along the way, we, but our legal victories really didn't happen until the trial began. And you know, to Andrew's credit, um, he did months, oh, probably over a year and a half's worth of work building his case and you know, bringing in the experts. And so that was never gonna show itself until the trial started. The victories that we caught were we utilized social media and we utilized our friends in the media. And we also ended up with people that worked directly in the commissioner's office and the chief's office and some in the mayor's office that were giving us the inside scoop of the politics that was taking place behind the scenes, conversations that were occurring between a mayor and a police commissioner. So we took that and we put it out into social media and we got it out there to embarrass them and to let the public know that what was taking place was not true. And we tried to neutralize the media so that when Andrew got the chance to go into the courtroom, there was no shock to the facts that were coming out. 
and it maybe a judge realized that this was you know political and you know even though he's going to base the case on law that there was another side of newspapers that you know he would see so we did get a lot of good media play by turning it around with our own message to go back to the the baseball bat i thought it was important because you did the correlation obviously uh the issues with the nfl and the concussions during your presentation you had a tie-in with what nfl players are receiving when they're wearing their helmets versus being struck by a baseball bat can you talk a little bit about that sure I think that is something that people could easily relate to, relate to in a sense of yeah. all the concussion injuries that we're seeing uh, in the NFL. Yeah, well, one of the things that we were immediately aware of is the perception that a 66-year-old woman swinging a bat isn't dangerous, right? I mean, she's just a little old lady. Well, first of all, Deborah Downer was no little old lady. She was 233 pounds. Bipolar, she, right? And bipolar, yeah, bipolar and offer medications. But more importantly, we, we were concerned that this concept of, you know, why didn't he just, you know, let her hit him, right? How bad could it be? So what we did um, was we reached out to a biomechanical engineer by the name of Dr. Christopher Vanney, uh, who's got his PhD in biomechanical engineering from Duke. And so you understand what I'm talking about. Biomechanical engineers are the guys that determine whether cars are safe and the way they're constructed and built, whether seat belts are effective for preventing accident or injury. Uh, Dr. Van E is now working with the government to develop um, undercarriages for uh, vehicles to prevent uh, soldiers from being injured by roadside bombs. Um, what he deals with is movement, motion, and impact to determine what that would, uh, what kind of impact that would be on the human body and would it create injury. And there's a science to this and there's a very large industry. So we knew that we needed to determine how hard could a 66-year-old, 233-pound woman swing a bat. So we had the resources to hire Dr. Vanney, and he conducted experiments. He got older women to swing a bat at a crash test dummy, uh, and he was able to determine back speed and impact force and G-force. And then he compared those results to the nationally recognized standards that are published by the, um, uh, the National Traffic Safety Administration, in other words, car accidents, to determine whether or not cars are being manufactured safely. And they have uh, data which would determine what level of force can cause what level of injury. Now, we never considered the possibility of trying this case in front of a jury in the Bronx, because we knew we couldn't get a fair jury as a result of what the mayor and the police commissioner said. So we tried the case in front of a judge. His name is Robert Neary. And we did a little background information. We found out that Robert Neary played, he was in fact an all-American tight end for Holy Cross University. So in, when Dr. Vanney was describing um, the impact, I said, well, can you relate that to some type of sports analogy? And he said, well, yeah, because we have an awful lot of data thanks to the NFL's um, research dealing with concussions on its players. What kind of impact would cause a concussion? And so we related the swinging of a bat to a concussion, and we determined that a 66-year-old woman can swing a bat much, much harder and with much greater force necessary to cause a concussion. Um, and we, we had about 50 or 60 swings of the bat uh, testing force and G-force and impact and determined 90% of them were sufficient enough to cause serious physical injury or death, meaning that we proved scientifically 
that if Deborah Danner swung a bat and hit you Barry in the head, she was going to injure or kill him. And most importantly, there's no question because every swing of the bat was enough to cause a concussion. And the danger with concussion is if you're an officer and you get hit in the bat and you're concussed, you're now defenseless. In other words, you're no longer reacting. A concussion diminishes your ability to react and respond and think. So if she hit him in the head once and even with the minimal force sufficient to concuss him, he would have been completely defenseless to a second blow. So we were able to introduce all of that testimony at the trial. Um, and what's interesting about it is um, I've tried a lot of cases. I've had a lot of expert witnesses on the stand, and I had a couple of other attorneys in the court who were working with us on this case. And when Dr. Vanny completed his testimony, I looked at my partner, John D'Alessandro, I said, that was the best testimony of any witness I have ever heard in my life. He went point by point methodically with charts and records and data to back up everything he said. And the district attorney never attempted to counter that. And what's crazy about it is it wasn't reported in the media. Yeah. There's just the media didn't report it. They, they just pretended it didn't happen. And meanwhile, it was the, the cornerstone of the entire defense, and they ignored it. What, uh, so after that, uh, how, much left, how much trial was left after this presentation and the fact that the media wasn't picking this up? Brian, let me, let me tell you this about that, because it, it's interesting. Um, I've tried a lot of high-profile police cases and um, where the media is there every day and they're reporting on a daily basis. I've probably tried, well, going back 15 years, well over a dozen. And when I win these cases, and we've had a lot of success, people walk up to me and they say, I can't believe you won that case. I was reading about it in the newspaper. And I say, you know what? We were never losing that case. And the U Barry case is no different. From the day we opened to the day we closed, I never thought we were losing that case. The evidence was overwhelming. The evidence was being presented in a way, even by the district attorney, that made it seem like U Barry was justified in swinging the bat. Um, essentially, their prosecution was, well, maybe he didn't have to. And of course, as we know in New York, the, the law says, no, y y if you're justified, you're justified. You don't have to think of other options. You don't have to look for less intrusive alternatives, right? If, if somebody points a gun at you, you don't have to say, well, let me hope that it's not loaded. You're allowed to fire, right? So we never thought we were losing, but that's been a dynamic that I've seen with the media, and, and it was true in the U Barry case as well, that we'll go to court and we'll have a great day in court, and then we'll read about it the next day and say, you never know it from what you read in the papers. And a, a classic example of this, at the very early stages of the case, there was a question of whether or not Mrs. Danner was on her feet or not when she swung the bat. And when I say there was a question, the DA apparently didn't know. We did, because all the witnesses said she was on her feet. They had a crime scene uh, technician testifying as to how he collected evidence, and he recovered a, a bullet fragment. And they asked, the district attorney asked him, was there a hole in the mattress? And he goes, no, it was on top of the mattress. The next day, the New York Post prints, the technician testified that there was a hole in the mattress from the bullet fired by Ubarry. It was unequivocally and diametrically untrue. And when I called the reporter out, there, and by the way, and it also gave, and this is the problem, it gave the, it, it gave the impression that Ubarry shot her when she was on the bed. And this is where this gets dangerous. This is where the media becomes so irresponsible in these cases. Because if I'm not following the case that closely, but I read that in the paper, and then three weeks later I see this cop gets acquitted, I'm thinking to myself, something's wrong with the system.
because she was sitting on the bed when he shot her. How much of a threat could she have been, right? I mean, that's what you would think if you're just, you know, the partial or casual observer of this case. There was another situation where at the end of the day, there was a police officer, I won't mention his name, um, but he was reported in the papers, but he was the one directly behind you, Barry. He was the most important and critical witness of this case. And his testimony was always the same, and he never changed what he said he saw, which is that Deborah Danner was on her feet, three to four feet away from you, Barry. You, Barry, could not back up. He asked her to drop the gun several times, and she was swinging the bat in her hand, sort of like in a right-handed batter stance, and stepped toward you, Barry. That's when he fired. And he never varied from that. But the district attorney, it was at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and she asked him the following questions. You saw the bat in Mrs. Danner's hand, correct? Yes. Did you see her swing the bat? No. Did you see him or her hit him with the bat? No. She says, Judge, can we approach? So we approach the bench. The judge says, what's up? She goes, we're done for the day. And I look at her. I said, no, 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 no. You just, that's completely misleading what you did. Now, I get to clean it up on cross. But she says, no, Judge, we'd like to finish for the day. And to his credit, Judge Neary said, nope, if you don't ask him more questions, I'm going to let Quinn cross-examine. But the point, Brian, is that the district attorney was trying to create a headline. And the headline was supposed to be, Deborah Downer never swung the bat at you, Barry. Well, she got up and she wasted another half hour asking meaningless questions. And sure enough, and when it was over, at 4.30, she said, Judge, I'm done. And I jumped up. I said, Judge, just give me five minutes, please, to clean this up. And he's a good judge, and I have a lot of respect for him. But he said, Mr. Quinn, I can't, because they have rules about at 4.30, trial's over. It has to do with court officers and contracts and stuff like that. He said, I can't. But he knew exactly what was going on. But sure enough, the next day, the headlines all over New York. Deborah Danner did not swing the bat at you, Barry. So, you know, there's, it, it's incredibly reckless and irresponsible to manipulate the media the way that, at least in this particular case, the Bronx District Attorney's Office did. Because, again, the casual observer is going to say, well, wait a second, how did this guy get acquitted when he shot her when she's sitting on the bed and she never swung the bat? Yeah, that's, that's a big problem that we, Ed and myself, and other union leaders in the, in the law enforcement industry, how do we overcome that? Because you're right, they set this up. You look at, every time I talk to somebody, they're like, well, this officer did X, Y, and Z, and he got acquitted, and it's like, but all we really know is what we read in the paper, and is that an actual, a factual account of what happened? You know, I always hear the stories, and I go sometimes down that road, you hear something on the TV, and you like presuppose what the outcome's gonna be. <laughs> And we even work in the industry. It's like, let's take a step back. Let's take a look at it. That's why I was so shocked to hear that your police commissioner came out so quickly after the shooting without even t talking to Hugh Barry Look, at he all. He was a newly appointed commissioner. Um, he, you can't know where you have a play in the league of Ray Kelly or Bill Bratton. And here's a guy that gets appointed. Um, you know, his claim to fame was his relationship with Bratton. He used to do videos or something you know, as a favor to Bratton years back, and next thing he's the police commissioner. Um, you know, I, I describe him as an amateur in a lot of ways, but at the end of the day, he made amateur decisions. And, you know, as Andrew's explaining what took place in the trial, is the DA's office didn't bring one witness, one piece of evidence. In fact, the people that they called 
actually supported our case as the department's expert witnesses when it came to the training and policy and things that we had argued to be true. They actually verified it at a trial. Our problem, Brian, as union leaders, as cops in, in, in America, is people are fascinated with police stories. They watch TV every day. And it's the old Clint Eastwood, you know, you fire a shot three blocks down and you catch the guy between the eyes. People believe that that could happen, shoot the gun out of their hand. They do not understand the reality of split-second decisions. And you can go from you and I having a conversation like this to being in a foot pursuit and one of us gets killed. They, they just don't understand that that happens. And I think that law enforcement needs to do a better job of changing that message and changing that perception of what the public sees so that it balances the playing field for us. But that's a monumental task. Yeah, it definitely is. So February 2018, Hugh Berry's acquitted of all charges. Correct. Where are we at now? And by the way, not only acquitted, just, you know, I, I like to point this out. I guess it's just catering to the attorney in me. But the judge said not only did the people fail to prove that he committed a crime, but they also failed to prove that he wasn't justified. In other words, it was a clean sweep. The judge said, A, he never committed a crime. You didn't introduce any evidence that he committed any of the four crimes that you alleged in the indictment. And B, even if you did, he would have been justified. So, so it wasn't just acquittal. It was, uh, it was a, a, an utter exoneration of you Barry's actions in that room in the Bronx. How does your department respond with the acquittal? Oh, it was terrible. Management? I mean, you know, O'Neill, uh, the day of the acquittal, was basically wearing a diaper. A couple hours later, he put out a citywide email to every member of the NYPD that um, Barry may have been acquitted in criminal court, but he still has to stand an administrative trial in the NYPD. I mean, this was within two hours of being acquitted. So it was, you know, sour grapes, um, political in a lot of ways. And, you know, we're a good year out of the trial, and, you know, Barry is, you know, working on modified duty still, and th there's no end in sight as to his life picking up the pieces to move forward. At the end of the day, you know, he took a job in the city of New York, he was sent there by a 911 caller. The department trained him to go there. They gave him the weapons. They gave him all the tools. He followed all his training. And now he's punished for making the decision to which he was trained to make. And no one wants to accept responsibility for that. What about the mayor? What's, uh, what was the mayor's response after the acquittal? The mayor's kind of gone silent on the, you know, the topic itself. The, the mayor has a very difficult time with the uh, members of the NYPD. You know, we had police officer Ramos and Lewis assassinated as a result of, um, you know, doing nothing for the protests that were occurring during the Black Lives Matter march. You know, both Bratton and O'Neill, who was the chief of the department at the time, just kind of furthered those uh, protests, and it led to two officers being assassinated, and um, we had mutiny between the NYPD and the mayor. So the mayor walks very, you know, softly when he has to deal with the cops in New York. What is on the administrative piece? Where are you? I mean, is it well, going to be done? Is he going to be back out on the street? Here's How? where we are. Um, originally, when they brought him up on administrative charges, the allegations mirrored the indictment. So it was simply murder two, man one, man two, crim neck. And obviously, if Hugh Barry was convicted, he would have been terminated because they were all felonies. So there would have been no need for administrative hearing. But now that we had the complete exoneration by Judge Neary, 
the department rethought its position and dismissed all those charges, but they filed charges that say that you, um, Barry, uh, failed to follow his training, which is ironic because we had a lieutenant and a uh, sergeant from the, the academy who teach training on how to deal with EDPs in the NYPD say that Sergeant Barry was following his training and he was consistent with his training. And, you know, there's some one other thing that was very interesting that came out of trial, which is they brought in a uh, psychologist who was the one who structured the EDP training for the NYPD. She put the program together. And I asked her, I said, okay, in the program, do you ever have training for armed or violent emotionally disturbed persons? And she said, no, we don't train for how to deal with armed or violent emotionally disturbed people. I said, why not? She goes, well, because at our training, we just want it to be a win-win scenario. So she acknowledges that the way they train NYPD, cops, sergeants, lieutenants, everybody on the street when dealing with EDPs, is it's going to be a win-win scenario, which any police officer will tell you is positively ludicrous. Half of them go bad, um, and they're always unpredictable. Um, but what they did in any event in terms of the disciplinary matter is uh, Sergeant Barris presently awaiting a disciplinary hearing, uh, but the charges are now that he failed to follow his training. And we've already highlighted the testimony of the, the lieutenant and the sergeant who've already testified he did follow his training. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, if we get a fair trial, um, disciplinary trial, uh, he'll keep his job. And by fair, I mean we've filed a lawsuit against um, the commissioner, James O'Neill, to get him off the case. We believe that he's already prejudged the case and that Ubarra can't get any form of due process if Jimmy O'Neill's going to be the individual that decides his fate because he decided his fate within 24 hours of the shooting without even knowing all the facts. And there's no way he can now turn around in our view and hear evidence and say, you know what, I'm going to let him stay on the job when he's already gone public condemning his actions. So we've got a lawsuit pending asking to remove um, Commissioner O'Neill from being the final arbiter of you, Barry's fate. Has your policy, are there future policy changes in dealing with mentally disturbed people? I mean, what's going to change? I mean, N nothing changed, Brian. We still handle jobs the same as we did 36 years ago, the same as we did three years ago. The only thing that changed was wording in the policy, and that was from EDP to person in crisis with no definition as to what that means. So, um, you know, they're playing a the game. They don't, they know that the job is getting done. If they had our emergency service unit respond to every job, well, then they would not be out there defending the city against terrorism and stuff like that. So they're hedging their bets and trying to just move on with their careers and they leave it up to the cop in the street. And it's really unfair. Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, I mean, it's, sort of sounds like the real failures at the number one spot with your police Correct. commissioner yeah. and, and not doing what's a series of done. incompetent people who just met all on the same night yeah. man that's crazy well i really uh want to thank both of you gentlemen for uh, for coming in here and, and talking about this um you know I, I i feel for hugh um like you stated earlier th this could happen to any one of us yeah. um could happen to us today it could happen to us tomorrow and without organizations like yours and, and mine and, and all the other uh, police unions out there protecting our officers, making sure that uh, we get the due process, because everybody else seems to get due process, right. except for us, right. uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's our job. And, um, you know, I'm thankful for organizations like you. I'm thankful for both of you coming and, and representing your officers in the best way possible because we'd be thrown to the wolves. Brian, I, I want to thank you also and, and the guys from UCOPS and PORAC. Um, and I think your members should know that, you know, throughout this process, we're talking about it, but um, you offered us assistance along the way. The UCOPS group um, came into New York. We, we did a lot of press. And I know that you guys were following it, you know, across the country. So um, every little piece along the way had ended in the acquittal. So, you know, you did play a role in it. And I think the people you represent need to know that you're not just here in California, but you're paying attention. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff. There's uh, What's really good about these conferences like the Major City and the Leals and the Big 50 is it really gives us an opportunity to sit down and talk. And, and, you know, sometimes we talk about our defeats, and we really have to learn from those. But to hear victories like this uh, I think are important because it shows that if we do step up, become proactive, and, and take it to them, uh, you know, it's a little uncomfortable. And I know a lot of people don't like to do that, and, and Ed and I have been talking a little bit about that. Um, but the reality is, is I think that's the new paradigm that we need to work in as union leaders, uh, especially with uh, police union leaders, because we have to be willing to change the narrative. And if we're not willing to do that, they're going to they're going to kick our butts every which way. And, you know, the last two years in California during the legislative session, I mean, they just they put they, they pressed us. We Our backs were against the wall with the amount of anti-public safety legislation. It's just I, I'm shocked at the level of how criminals are held up and glorified that they're the victims it's about votes though it's the elected officials believe that they're going to keep getting votes by softening the system and at the end of the day what they're doing is they're softening the safety of the communities which they live in and they will reap the opposite of that as it goes forward and it's sad, too, because, you know, we talked a little bit about ethics and leadership, and, and that's what we're going to title this podcast is, you know, ethics and uh, police management. And, you know, your commissioner and chief of the department, right. you know, they had an opportunity to, they don't have to prejudge the case, but Just you know what? Let it take its course. Yeah, yeah. But, but if I was a chief and you have your own police academy, you're basically indicting your training staff right. that they didn't do their job. I step back and say, you know what? I believe that my department did the possibly the best possible training to Hugh Barry that he got. And I'm going to sit back. I'm going to look at the investigation. I'm going to let my professional people that I have working for me come to me and tell me this is the way it played out. And then I'll make a decision instead of two hours after an incident, I f- he failed. He didn't do his job. How easy is that? Well, you know, it's, leaders are often determined by, you know, you, you do what's popular or you do what's right. In this case, O'Neill did what was right for him and what was popular for him because he was following the orders of the mayor. It, there was a meeting that took place the next morning, and O'Neill, at his staff meeting, told his chiefs and deputy commissioners that they need to stick with the mayor on this. The mayor's been very supportive of the NYPD. I mean, if you're not talking about a conspiracy behind the scenes here of what's taking place, but um, we know that to be true as a fact from the people that were in the meeting. Everybody was telling us what was going on. It's terrible. Yeah, and and, and you guys are the largest police department in the United States. 
can you imagine at the smaller groups? Well, that's who we feel bad for. There's there's 60-man departments, there's 1,000-man departments, um, and we're seeing this across the country. Like, how do they defend against a case like this? And, you know, if they're in the wrong town with the wrong elected official or get the wrong coverage, um, their story never gets told. And, you know, that's tragic uh, because at the end of the day, cops don't go to work to commit crimes. They don't go to work to be the bad guys. They're actually going to work as the good guys trying to help people. And one little incident that we are, again, judging three years later was a decision that was made in seconds. And there's, there's got to be a balance to that. I agree. Brian, to that point, um, because we've been left, uh, representing police officers for so long, um, and there's a, a number of very, very small jobs in uh, the suburban counties north of New York. And a couple of officers were indicted out of there, and they didn't. The, the union didn't have the ability, the financial ability, to represent them at all. So what we did was we put together a criminal legal plan that the officers pay on a monthly basis, a small amount, but God forbid, it's your job or it's your officer. You don't have to worry about the expense, and we're able to offer officers outside the SBA the same level of protection that the SBA, through its size and its resource and its management, is able to offer. And I anticipate that's going to be um, something that you see more and more of across the country. The legal defense plans have to have the ability to give a five-star representation to a cop who's in a jam. Because as you can see just through the U. Barry case, it's not just a matter of, you know, what's the evidence show? There, there's many more dynamics that you have to be experienced and prepared to deal with. And if you're not, you know, an officer can go to jail that, that was really just doing his job, and that would be tragic. We got to get the bigger departments to help out these smaller departments. You know, we we work pretty well with Andrew and a lot of the smaller departments that we'll jump in and help where we can. But bigger departments that you know, groups like yours, Chicago, the big the big cities, need to start looking out for the surrounding departments because we're all on the same team. We're all doing the you know the right thing here, and we need to stick together in that aspect of it. Totally agree. Well, again, gentlemen, I uh, thank you so much for uh, coming and being on my show. Um, again, I, I think your presentation that you've done at several locations is, is very compelling. Um, I, I think it's important that we spread this word, that other people hear about this. Um, you know, hear about the story, but hear about the defense and how the media played a critical role in, in creating this narrative that, Hugh did all the wrong things, which was completely opposite of what you heard in the court, which then leads the public to think that Hugh got a pass. He didn't do his job right, but because he's a cop, he's free. Where if this was just some regular Joe citizen, they would be screwed and they would be going to jail. And that's just not the case. And I really wish we could change that narrative on a greater scale. And it is going to take steps forward in organizations like ours to come together to deal with that. But again, uh, thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on our social media platforms. Go to poorac.org for more info, poorac.org. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Google, please give us five stars. This helps us get noticed. Don't forget to share our podcast with your members, friends, and families. All the best and have a safe day. That's it for this episode. Make sure you tune in next time as we discuss the issues that matter.